0: As Callan stated, we will be studying Acts chapter 13 tonight, and I have a love-hate relationship with chapter studies. I love them because they help us understand the proper context of passages we might not understand properly. I love them because we study things we don't normally study, but I hate them because I have 52 verses to get through to. Tonight, so I'm going to try to get through them pretty quickly. There's a lot of stuff we're not going to be able to cover tonight, but I hope that we can go through this chapter and learn some things that are beneficial for us as a congregation and for us individually. It's been a while, but Andrew read uh, Andrew did chapter one of Acts of the chapter studies. And he properly said that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 summarizes the book of Acts. When Jesus told the apostles, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we've seen that happen. We see the day of Pentecost, the the church begins, we see the church of Jerusalem swells to a very large number. But beginning with the martyrdom the stoning of stephen we see the church scatters the jewish leaders are trying to stomp it out and what they did was make christians go everywhere and they took the gospel with him one of the churches that luke traces as he's writing the book of acts is the church of A- at antioch and in Acts chapter 11 verse 19 we follow the footsteps of these people who started this church And I think it's helpful for us to look at this, so I want to read through Acts chapter 11, 19 through 26, that we can remember how this church at Antioch got there. The Bible says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists or to the Greeks. Preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. So, this is a, a map of the Mediterranean Sea, the kind of the, the Roman Empire. And if you look over here in the bottom corner, this is Judea, this green section. And in that city was Jerusalem, that's when the church started. And the Bible says when they persecuted or they martyred Stephen, they took the gospel to Phoenicia, which is right here to Cyprus, this island, and then to Antioch, which is up here on the northern part of Syria. Now when the word reached the Jewish, uh, or the Jerusalem church, we see what happens in verse 22. The news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and he had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with pr- all that with purpose of heart they should continue in the lord continue with the lord excuse me for he was a good man full of the holy spirit and of, of faith and a great many people were added to the lord then barnabas departed for tarsus to seek saul and when he had found him he brought him to antioch so it was that after that i'm having a hard time so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called christians in antioch So I think it's helpful for us to understand how exactly the origins of this church and what's been going on. This church grew significantly or or real quickly so much that the apostles in Jerusalem wanted to send someone to oversee this church and to help this church through growing pains. When Barnabas got there, he he decided to go get Paul or Saul at, at Tarsus. Tarsus is over here in this corner right here. So this is Antioch, this is Tarsus. Paul had been laboring there for some time. He goes and gets Paul from Tarsus and brings it back, and the Bible says that they labored there for a year. Um, In Acts chapter 13, what we're going to see, we're going to see a theme change. Sawyer referenced this in his study last week. The focus has been on the church of Jerusalem, on Peter. But we see the focus turns to Paul. And for the duration of the rest of of Acts, the majority of the work is going to be about Paul and his missionary journeys, which he's going to start tonight in Acts chapter 13. And the geographical area that this uh, missionary journey is going to be this, this specific area, starting in Antioch and working in this area. Now let's go to Acts chapter 13 and we'll begin in verse 1. The Bible says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them, they sent them away. So I want to think a moment about this first verse. Why is that in there? This is just a simple list of the five men who played a role in edifying the church there at Antioch as either a prophet or a teacher. Why is that in there? And what good does it do for us? Here in Acts chapter 13, we see a model for the congregation or how the Lord wants a congregation to be established. He wants men who have the ability and the talents, the God-given ability and God-given talent to contribute to the edification of the church. These were five men who came from very different backgrounds, very different experiences. And each of these men were to help with the edification of the church. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11, Paul in his letter to the, the, the church at Ephesus, he talks about God's plan for how the church is to be edified. The Bible says, And he himself gave some to be apostles and prophets. Now apostles and prophets were necessary for the church until the New Testament was complete, till that which is perfect has come. And now that the the Bible has been written, we have the scripture, we have no need for apostles. We have no need for prophets because we have God's word in the scriptures, in our Bibles. Next he says he gave some evangelists. We read about evangelists in the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and to Titus. He told those men to go into different churches and set things in order. Oversee the church, make sure things are going well, and then ordain elders. Ordain men who match the qualities of those who should be an an elder. If you remember Brent's lesson a few weeks ago, that's what he talked about. And then he talks about, after evangelists, he says, And some pastors, that's another word for a shepherd or an elder, and some teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So these are the different offices or roles that God wanted in a church so that the church could grow effectively. Notice, it wasn't just one group that was supposed to do all the work, or one person. It wasn't just one, or one group, just the apostles, or just the pastors, or just the teachers. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to be focused on equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Give these people the tools that they need so that they can go out and they can work also. And they were supposed to provide the edification to the body of Christ. It was never one group's job to work, but God's model is to get as many people involved in teaching as possible. Now continue on in verse 15, Paul says, But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share." causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God's model for the church is that every person, every part, every joint is contributing to the growth. Every part does its share. That's what we saw in in this first verse in Acts chapter 13. Another example that we can see of this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 verse 26. Paul is addressing the orderliness and the edification of the assembly, in the in the assembly. And he says, How is it then, brethren? Whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation, let all things be done for edification. The Christians at Corinth were so excited to contribute, and they were all trying to do their best to be a part of the assembly. They were eager to participate, they wanted to help. And it became confusing and chaotic. And so he was addressing that. But their attitude was they wanted to contribute. And that's what we see in Antioch as well. So these five men had the God-given ability and took responsibility. They never shirked their duty. Now, this is the model that the leaders of this congregation have tried to follow, isn't it? And I remember growing up when I was a teenager I was given the chance to be a teacher and I remember standing up here and if you could have seen around this pulpit my knees were just shaking and I had stutters and I was nervous because I would look up and I would see men who are much more qualified to be teaching men who are wiser and smarter and experienced better communicators better students of God's word and I remember thinking why am I up here? Well, Acts 13 tells us why. If Menaean or Simeon or Lucius, I forgot his name. If those three guys would have stepped back and would have not been willing to, to do their part to work in the church and build their responsibilities and build up their talents, when God calls Saul and Barnabas away, what would have happened to the church at Antioch? It would have fallen apart. But these men had developed their talents and their abilities, and God could call Saul and Barnabas away to start a new church, and the church at Antioch would not miss a beat. So when we have a congregation that reaches a mature station where we have lots of people contributing to the growth, do we stop there? Are we satisfied there? Well, the example that we see in Antioch is that they stopped looking inwardly and just edifying the body, and they looked outwardly to how they could help the gospel and help churches elsewhere. And that's when Saul and Barnabas went and taught the gospel in other places. So the, Plainview should, the congregation at Plainview, we should do that, shouldn't we? And every Sunday, guess what? We have men who travel to other congregations to teach and encourage other Christians. We have men who go go and hold gospel meetings in places around here. We have men who travel to foreign countries and take the gospel. The congregation at Plainview should have a worldwide vision for helping the church grow. And the congregation at Plainview should always be focused on taking the gospel. So in this model... We have as many people contributing. We have strong individuals in the churches. It generates spiritual leadership and families. And when we have strong families, what do we have? A strong church, a church that's growing. That's what we have in the church at Antioch. So God calls them out. And I recognize I spent a lot of time on these first three verses. Don't worry, we are going to pick up the pace. So God calls them out, and so they send them away. In Acts chapter thirteen, verses four through five, the Bible says, "So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John as their assistant. So Barnabas, Saul, and John—they traveled down from Antioch to this city called Seleucia. They took a river down, most likely." And then from Seleucia, they traveled across the the Mediterranean Sea to the island Cyprus and landed in a city called Salamis. Now, why do you think they went there? Why was Cyprus the place to go? The first reason is a pretty good reason. Maybe God told them. We don't know. But if he didn't, he gave them options. They could have gone north, west, south, or east. Why did they choose Cyprus? Let's, take for, let's think for a moment if God had not given them that, or if God had given them that choice, why would they choose that place? Well, number one, notice that word synagogues. This city had synagogues in it. That means that there were a lot of Jews. And from what I studied, this island was filled with a bunch of Jews who were great opportunities to teach the word of God and to sow the gospel into their hearts. They were fertile soul for the gospel number two geographically it was close and then number three this is where barnabas was from in acts chapter 4 verse 36 it says that barnabas was a levite of the country of cyprus when we think about taking the gospel to the world what do we i know what i've normally thought it would be cool to go to a foreign country To go to a different place and take the gospel to a village out in the middle of nowhere and teach the gospel. Is that very effective? It can be and it's needed. But Barnabas knew the people. He knew the terrain. He had family. He had friends from there. He knew the culture. He knew exactly where to go. And sometimes I think we think that we need to travel a far away place so that we can do gospel work. The best place to work is this area. We know people. We understand the culture. We understand the language. And that's, that's a good reason that they went to Cyprus. From Salamis, they traveled throughout Cyprus, and we don't actually have any details until they get to a city called Paphos. In Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 8, the Bible says, Now when they had gone through the island of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the sorcerer, for so, so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So they travel through, through the island and they land in this city. And there in this city, this was the Roman capital. Paphos was the Roman capital and the governor or the proconsul was a man by the name of Sergius Paulus. Now I think it's interesting, the Bible says that he was an intelligent man. Why was he intelligent? I think he was an intelligent man because he was seeking God. Do you think most Roman authorities were looking to try to understand God and to seek eternal things? They were probably focused on the sensual appetites and on power and wealth and things of this world. But this man, Sergius Paulus, was a God-seeking man. And this guy, Bar-Jesus, whose name actually means son of salvation, that's what Bar-Jesus means, he took advantage of that. And he taught this man a distorted view of the God of the Bible, the one true and living God. But this man had an improper understanding of God. The Bible says that this man was a a sorcerer and a false prophet. So he had, this Sergius Paulus had a distorted view of the Bible, but he was seeking God, wasn't he? And we could see that at the... After that, it says, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. When he heard that Barnabas and Saul were in in the city and they were teaching and preaching and stirring things up, what did he, he do? Bring these guys to me. I want to hear what they have to say about the word of God. He wanted to hear the word of God. If you want to be intelligent in God's eyes, how do you obtain that intelligence? Seeking the word of God. That's why we read and study, and we're encouraged to read and study all the time. <clears throat> Verse 8 says, But Elimus, or Elimus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. This man had power. He had influence with this man. And what does he see? Paul and Barnabas are going to steal that. And so he resists them and he wants to keep him from believing that. Now let's find out what happens in verse 9. Then Saul, he was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit looked intently at him and said, "O fool, Of deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So Elimus says, we're going to battle, and I'm going to maintain my influence and power. He didn't pick a good battle, did he? Now, notice what Paul did. The Bible says Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit. When we read that in reference to things that go on in Acts, what does that mean? Well, Let's look at three passages where that's also used. In Acts chapter 2, this is the day of Pentecost. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So the Spirit, they were filled with the Spirit, and they began to speak. In Acts chapter 4, verse 8, Peter and John were brought before the Sanhedrin. And the Bible says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel. And then finally, in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So when we go back to Acts chapter 13, and we see that Paul was filled with the Spirit, do you think he was saying those insults and those harsh things out of anger? Or was he doing this because this is what God wanted him to say? I think it's the latter. I think this is what God wanted him to say. He wasn't acting out of anger when he said these things. He was revealing this man's true character. When Paul said that he was a son of the devil, he was a son of the devil. When Paul said he was an enemy of all righteousness, he was an enemy of all righteousness. Now, in verse 11, we see Paul looks at him, and he pronounces this, it's not a miracle, it's a miraculous sign. It's more of a curse upon him. He blinds him so that he would not be able to see for a time. I thought that was a weird miracle, and I was, I was thinking about the miracles that we see in the New Testament. Usually, what do they do? They're uplifting, and they're good. A man who's blind can see. A man who is lame is healed, or a person's risen from the dead. But this man is struck blind. This is the only one that does damage to somebody. And Paul says it's for a time. And I was trying to think what the purpose of that was. I thought about Paul and how he was struck blind on the road to Damascus, and his physical blindness led him to spiritual sight. And maybe that's what Paul wanted on this man. But as I thought about that, I, I thought there was a pretty big difference between Paul and this guy. Paul persecuted the church ignorantly. This guy was just completely wicked. So they were completely different guys. And we don't read any account of this man believing. What I think this is more about, it's more like what Moses did with the magicians of Pharaoh. When Moses went into Pharaoh and he said, let my people go, God said, let my people go. God gave him signs and wonders to show that this was a message that came from God. And Pharaoh ignored those, didn't he? His heart was hardened, just like this Elimus's. But the fact that God through Paul showed that his power was greater than this sorcerer's, notice what happened in verse twelve. The proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So God confirmed his desire for a free Israel through the plagues and the miracles that Moses was able to do. And God confirmed his message of the gospel to this man, Sergius Paulus, through striking this man blind. In Acts chapter 14, verse 3, this is a, a, an example of this, another example of this. In the next chapter, we'll study next Sunday night, Lord willing. The Bible says, Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who is bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by his hand. So as we think about this, the proconsul believed because of this miracle, of this spiritual advisor, this man that he trusted and looked up to most, was struck blind. So he believed Paul and Barnabas. But notice what he was astonished at. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't the miracle that astonished him. It was the teaching of the Lord. This book that we have was written by God. And the, teaching of it, the teachings of it are just as exciting, just as astonishing as any miracle that we read about in it. This is a wonderful book. We don't need those miracles today because we have the written word of God, which should be just as astonishing. Now, before we move on, this stone right here has an inscription for Sergius Paulus. For the longest time, this Sergius Paulus was absent from history. And they thought that this was a made, up, a made up character in the scripture. But in 1877, this rock with this inscription was found in a city called Silo, just north of Paphos. So we have a character in the Bible who has been confirmed to be a real character in In uh, archaeology and history Okay Going back to Acts chapter 13 Beginning with verse 13 Now when Paul and his party I want to stop there and think about it If you've noticed it's always been Barnabas and Saul Barnabas and Saul And there was something that happened At this particular instance He is now going to be referred to as Paul For the rest of Acts We don't have an exact reason Why Why but something happens, and Paul rises to, to prominence here. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his party. And the Bible says they set sail from Paphos. They came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went, went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So going back to our island here, they've They've done all the work in Paphos that they want to. And they travel up north to this city on the coast called Perga. And the Bible says that John left. And this is going to be an issue between John, or between uh, Barabbas, not Barabbas, that's a different character, Barnabas and Paul. This is going to be an issue later on. Paul didn't like the fact that John left. But from Perga, Paul... And Barnabas traveled north to this city called Antioch. And the Bible says, going back, it says, When they departed from Perga, they went to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. This is always what Paul did. When he go to a new city, he would go to the synagogue and he would preach to the Jews. He would take the gospel to the Jews. So he goes and so they go and they sit down and the Bible says in Acts 13 verse 15 after the reading of the law of the prophets the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying men and brethren if you have any word of exhortation for the people say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said men of Israel and you who fear God listen. So they go into the synagogue they sit down. These Jewish leaders don't know they're Christians do they? They would not have given them the floor if they would have known they were Christians. But they know they're spiritual. They know they're rabbis or something. For some reason, they have some indication that these are spiritual men. And they ask them, do you have a word to say? And what does Paul do? Don't mind if I do. I'm going to preach the gospel to these people. Now, the next... uh, The next verses are going to record Paul's sermon to these Jewish people. And for me, it's helpful if I understand the outline of his sermon. So behind me, I've got the outline of his sermon. What is his goal? He's going to convince Jews to become Christians because Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Messiah of Israel. That's gonna be his goal. I'm gonna try to convince these people that they should become Christians because Jesus is the promised Messiah. What he's gonna do first, part one, he's gonna show that God promised salvation in this Messiah. Number two, he's gonna give all the the reasons or the verifications that Jesus is the Messiah. And then number three, he's gonna challenge them to do something with the information he's given them. So let's go through and let's read this sermon and we'll break it down by these points. In verse 17, Paul says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people. When they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt and with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now, for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they had asked for a king. So God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Now, as Paul's preaching, what do you think those Jewish leaders were doing? They were nodding their hand in agreement. They might have said amen. But but Paul's about to drop the bomb on them. And their world's about to get turned upside down. Because they opened up a can of worms that they can't close. And Paul says from this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a savior, Jesus. Can you imagine the look on these men's faces? Their eyes got real big and their jaw dropped. What have we done? But Paul had the floor and he was going to use it to teach these people about the gospel. Now, if you think Paul would have gone in there and said, guys, Judaism's over. Christianity is the right way. And you're dumb if you don't believe it. Do you think it would have been very successful? He would have just been labeled as an apostate Jew, wouldn't he? This guy claimed to be a Jew but he's just apostate. So what does he do? He has a strategy. He has a game plan. I'm going to start in a place where me and my audience agree. And he slowly went through the history of Israel. Something that would show that he is a Jew, that he loves his people, and he understood the history. And he went, beginning with the patriarchs, the fathers, went through Egypt and the wilderness and conquering Canaan through the, the judges and the king, developing that rapport with them, showing them that he was not just some guy who discarded all of the Old Testament history. But what he's going to do is start in a place where they, they agree, and then work to that place where they disagree, and then show them that their understanding is not exactly right. And that's what he begins to do in verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. David was the most beloved king of Israel. They loved him. And God. Or Paul pivots from the promises that God made to David about raising up a seed after him to this promise of Jesus. So he's gone through, number one, God promised salvation in the Messiah. And number two, he's going to start giving the verifications that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's going to begin by the testimony of John. Let's start back in verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John... Was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. So, John was a guy that was loved by the Jews. They loved him, they thought he was a prophet of God. And by using him first, Paul says, The guy that you loved, what did he say? He said that there's a guy coming who is the Messiah. So he first uses the testimony of John. Next, he talks about the resurrection. <clears throat> Sorry, the rejection, which was foretold by the scriptures. And as John is finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Verse 26 says, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who feared God to To you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So he says, they fulfilled the prophecies and what the prophets had to say by condemning Jesus. They had no idea what they were doing. Verse 28, and though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written written concerning him, when they had fulfilled the prophecies concerning Jesus, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. So Paul says the rejection of Jesus, the, the condemnation of Jesus, it was foretold by the scriptures. And the third and last reason why we can know that Jesus is the Messiah The climax of his lesson was the fact that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Beginning back in verse 29, Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings the, that promise which was made to the fathers. He was r- raised from the dead by God, and this was not something done in a quarter, in a corner, in a closet, somewhere off. This was in Jerusalem, and lots and lots of people saw him. They know this was Jesus. And these were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Not only did those people serve as eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but the scriptures prophesied that he would be resurrected as well. So Paul goes back to the Old Testament scriptures, and he shows them that the Old Testament prophecies said that this would happen. In verse 32, he says, "...and we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he raised up, raised, has raised up Jesus." So God has fulfilled these prophecies that he raised up Jesus. And he goes on to list three different prophecies from the Old Testament scriptures. He says, as it is also written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I've begotten you. And that He has raised and that He raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, has buried his fathers, and saw corruption, but he whom God raised up saw no corruption. So Paul says that that these prophecies that you've heard since you were such a young child You've come to the Sabbath, you've come to the synagogue, you've heard these prophecies, you know them by heart. These are all talking about his resurrection. And he mentions three specific verses. Psalms chapter 2 verse 7, Isaiah chapter 55 verse 3, and Psalms chapter 16 and verse 3. These are, th- these are passages of scripture that they were very familiar with. And he uses those to show them that the resurrection was Prophesied by the prophets. So God, so Paul's given him the information. Now it's time to ask him, what are you going to do with it? You have all these reasons that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the son of God. Now what are you going to do with it? First thing he challenges them, believe in Jesus. Verse 38, Paul says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He says, we preach to you the forgiveness of sins through this man, through Jesus. We're preaching this to you, and you can only have this if you believe. And he, Paul makes a pretty strong statement against the law of Moses here. He says, everyone who believes is justified from all things from whom or from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That was a pretty harsh statement toward the law. He's saying the law is inept. It cannot do it. It cannot justify you. It cannot forgive you. To a Jew, that was not easy to receive, was it? But he says, you can have salvation through Jesus. And then the last part he said he asked them to heed the warning of the prophets. In verse forty he says, Beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare, one to declare it to you. Specifically he's referring to Habakkuk chapter one, verse five. But over and over and over in the prophets, or in the Old Testament prophets, what do we see? They warned them about destruction. They warned about a doom. Change your life. Fix your life. Receive the word of God. And if you don't, you will be destroyed. And Paul's applying that to these men here. Receive the word of God. Receive Christ. Don't be those who don't heed the warning of the prophets. So that's the basic outline of his sermon. Did he accomplish his goal? The Bible says that he did in some ways. In verse 42, it says, So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged them that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. And on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. So some received it. They were ready. They were willing. We want to understand more. And I love the imagery. Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogues, and these people were chasing them. Hey, let's talk more. Let's talk more as they were walking to their homes. This is important enough for them to follow Barnabas and to follow uh, Paul so that they could learn more about this new message that they had not heard. Now, do you think Paul and Barnabas... Uh, Set idle for the rest of that week no they were in homes and they were doing bible studies and no doubt those who were there for that day what did they do they went and told people hey you need to listen to these guys who are visiting listen to what they have to say word got out and the bible says that the whole city came together to hear them the next sabbath this was jews this were proselyte gentiles and these were heathen gentiles Now the Jews had already been told by Paul, what? That the law was inept. And now the whole city's coming to listen to these guys. Do you think the Jews are going to like that? No. They're going to be jealous, aren't they? And that's what we read in the next verse. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. They were filled with envy. Not just a little bit of envy. They were filled with it. And it drove them mad. All they wanted to do was contradict and blaspheme Paul. And the Bible says they contradicted and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it, they rejected the word of God. And he says, You judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles, for so the Lord has commanded us, I have set to you as a lot to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul's sermon was the first strike. And the fact that all these people showed up was strike three. They didn't want to hear any more. They wanted to run Paul and Barnabas off. <clears throat> and they rejected it. Paul told them, you're rejecting it. You're fulfilling prophecy. And he quotes this This prophecy about having to turn to be a lot to the Gentiles because the Jews did not receive the word. In verse 48, the Bible says, Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the Jews rejected the word and rendered themselves unworthy of eternal life. But the Gentiles, the Bible says, they received it and as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. They were determined to obtain eternal life. Whether we hear God's word and we believe it and follow it, what does that lead to? It leads to heaven. It leads to eternal life. When we reject it, we ignore it, we render ourselves unworthy. Verse 49, the Bible says, and the word of the Lord is being spread throughout all the region. So we see that they labored there for a time. Word got out, and word was going around, not just in the city, but throughout the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from the region. The Jews were sick of it. Just like the Jews were sick of Jesus, what did they have to do? They had to go to the government authorities to get Jesus to stop preaching and teaching about the coming kingdom. They had to silence him. And that's what the Jews did with Paul and Barnabas. We can't defeat them. We can't prove that they're wrong. So what are we going to do? We're going to go tattletale and make sure that the Romans kicked them out. And that's what they did. They got the, the city officials to run them out of the region. Verse 51 says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So they leave Antioch and they head to this city called Iconium. And that's where chapter 14 will be when we get, uh, get together next Sunday night. <clears throat> Notice verse 52, though. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Paul and Barnabas had just been kicked out. They left, and they could no longer be with him. That was not any reason to despair. The joy that these people had had over receiving the gospel, having their sins washed away, their guilt leaving them. That was what kept them grounded. They kept grounded because of the joy that they had through the gospel. The Jewish people, what were they trying to do? Cut the head off, right? Kill the body if you cut the head off. It didn't work with Christianity. They got rid of the head, but they still held fast to their Christian faith. And the Bible says they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Hope the study's been beneficial to you. I know we've covered a lot of ground. We've skipped a lot of stuff. But I hope you've enjoyed the study. And I look forward to going through the rest of Acts chapter, or Acts 14 and on. We don't like to close the service without offering an invitation. And I want to do exactly what Paul did here in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Paul was teaching these people that forgiveness is found in Christ alone. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about that tonight. But we wouldn't be here if it weren't for the forgiveness that we can have through Jesus Christ, through his blood, because he was willing to die on the cross for our sins, we can have salvation. There may be some in the audience tonight who have not experienced that. You've been like those Jews who rejected the word of God. Stop doing that tonight. Receive Christ tonight. If you have a spiritual need, you want to be baptized, you need prayers of the church, let us know we can help you as we stand and sing the song that's been selected.